You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. Good morning, afternoon, evening, AV nerds around the global community. Welcome to this week's episode of the Forever on the Fly podcast, your bi-weekly dose of aviation, inspiration, education, and entertainment. My name is Diane Dollar. And I am Jose Hernandez. We're here joining forces to get you guys hooked on aviation. (laughs) So that was pretty tricky because right now Jose and I are on Zoom because I am no longer in Los Angeles. I know you left me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) I had to spread my wings and fly to the East Coast (laughs) or (laughs) drive to the East Coast. (laughs) That was a that was a long drive, man. That was pretty long. I know. I couldn't believe it took you that long, you know? Well, I was wondering if you made it on the 405 North. <laughs> well, you know, I I had to make a pit stop in Texas uh, for a couple of weeks and uh, did some training there with another kind of group of private owners type of a deal. And that was pretty good. Got to fly yeah. EC, EC-120. In the EC-130 and uh, did a couple of flights in the Bell 206. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, did my cool. did my first dolly landing in a couple of years. <laughs> wow. Did you, uh, what one did you like better? The EC-120? I know you haven't flown that before in the 206, right? Yeah. You haven't flown those aircraft before? I have flown a 206, a couple, uh, like 16 hours in a 206, a very long time ago. I did a turbine transition course when I was going through flight school. Mm, which, you went to upper limit? Which, by the way, is not... <laughs> <laughs> no. Which, by the way, if anybody's thinking they're in flight school and they're thinking they want to take a turbine transition course, it is not worth the moolah and the only reason why I was able to do it was because the GI Bill was paying for it so it was a college credits for me but that school has now lost their privileges yeah. <laughs> and no I didn't go to upper limit I went to yeah. a universal helicopter um, oh gotcha gotcha yes but yeah you know I actually enjoyed flying the EC-120 a lot which is did you I did. You know, it gets a bad rap. A lot of people don't talk about it, but I really enjoyed it because it's smaller than an EC-130. And the, the tail rotor is not boosted, but it was a lot easier to move the pedals. So I felt more comfortable in there because I'm so used to flying A-stars and, you know, having my having my tail rotor hydraulically boosted. And an EC-130 hopping in there, it was a little funky at first, you know? It's kind of kind of mm-hmm. weird to get used to again with the pedals being so heavy and... I didn't really yeah. like. I didn't really like it too much, but no. yeah, yeah. But EC one twenty was super was super cool. I mean, as long as it's not loaded up, I mean, you get a bunch of people in there. Uh, you know, it doesn't perform too great. But if it's just yeah. you, you and one other person, it's actually a really fun little bird to fly. So I, I was I was I was pretty happy with it. You know, is that the one you landed on the dolly? No, that was a two hundred six. Yeah. But yeah, then the training was really cool. You know, I got to do um, my buddy Dominic, who I think we're going to get on the podcast here at some point. He actually did all of the data collecting flights to create the A-Star simulator for flight safety. So that guy's uh, pretty legit. 
with yeah. his flying abilities. And we got to do some really cool tail rotor failure training that I had never done before. That's cool. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear you got some pretty cool training out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Dude, people in Texas are so nice, which is one of the reasons I've decided to move there in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm going to be flying uh, some fixed wing. I'm actually getting my multi-engine license right now. My check ride's on the 19th. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. I am a, a collector of ratings at this point. <laughs> it's one It's one of the last ones that I need to get, right? So my fixed wing, multi-engine license, so I can hop on a King Air. And I'm also going to be flying a Pilatus, hopefully. That'd be awesome. Yep. And yeah, a lot of would be really a PC 12. Yep. PC 12 yeah. and some helicopter stuff also. So just find really? contract stuff for private owners. It's going to be pretty awesome. We'll see if it, you know, it can make a life down there. Well, you're not done with your uh, ratings yet. We still have to get our float. Oh, yeah. yes. Next summer. <laughs> Alaska. <laughs> that is on the docket as well. Seaplane. That, that is on the docket. Seaplane. Yeah. We, we got to get our, uh, our float ratings. That'd be, that'd be sick. That's going to be next summer for Fuss Shizzle. And by the way, guys, um, I just want to apologize for our absence um, time away from our podcast. I had a lot of life events going on, and we're going to get back to it. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and I hope to be pumping them out here on the regular for you all. I, too, have had a lot of life events, as we mentioned. I had to drive and move my entire life across the country. And that, but yeah, we're excited to get back to it. Our next guest, a million words come to mind when describing her leader, aviatrix, inspire, majorly awesome human being with over 1500 hours in the F-16, including 163 combat hours over Afghanistan in support of Operation Resolute Support and Operation Freedom Sentinel. There's no doubt that this woman is a true hero and patriot. She's currently flying her second season with the United States Air Force Thunderbirds. Dang. Paving the way as a lead solo pilot, flying the number five jet out of Nellis Air Force Base and serves as the squadron's chief of standardization and evaluation. And stay tuned for the end of the episode where we talk about external and internal pressures and a reminder to stay actively proactive in your pre-flight process to culture a safe and healthy flight. We've been waiting a really long time for this, and I'm sure you guys have been on the edge of your seat waiting for us to come out with a new episode. So we're stoked that she's here joining us today. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Michelle Curran. You do a full barrel roll, and eventually you'll do a full loop, and we'll just do them over and over, and you just move it in tighter and tighter. Hey, I'm Major Michelle Curran, and I'm forever on the fly. Hey, how's it going? Good. My name's Jose, by the way, Senorita. Nice to finally meet you or see you in person. Right? Yeah. (laughs) It's been a work in progress to get this scheduled, huh? I know. Major. Major Michelle Curran. Is it Curran or Curran? Curran. Curran. Awesome. Where are you at right now? Uh, We are in Pocono, Pennsylvania. Okay. What's there to do in Pocono? Not, not a lot. Not much. <laughs> Pocono. Is that on the east or west side of Pennsylvania? Uh, it's on the east side. We're really close to New York. So we're actually going to Stewart uh, in New York tomorrow, and it's like a 10-minute flight for us. Oh, really? Right Did on. that hurricane affect you guys at all? I thought I heard something about it. 
Yeah, it canceled our air show on Sunday just because so much rain came through. What? Ew. That sucks. Lame. Yeah, so we only flew on sun or on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, but it's sunny out now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things. Let's talk about you. We're gonna talk about mace. <laughs> and anytime I hear the word mace, it just brings me back to being maced when I was in the Coast Guard. Everyone thinks that I must have like beat some guy up and sprayed him with pepper spray. And that's how I got my call sign. I wish it was something cool like that. Yeah. In general, call signs sound cool, but they almost never have a cool like story that makes you cool. Like they purposely give you a call sign for something dumb you did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have heard. I know. I mean, I've learned like there's one that we're called peg leg, right? Mm-hmm. Peg leg. And another one was, what was the other um, call sign that we heard that was on our interviews? Um, I don't know, just, I mean, yeah. rain. Rain. I'm sure oh, you yeah. know rain. rain. I'm sure you know rainwaters. Yeah. Did you guys serve in Afghanistan yeah. together? Uh, we weren't in the same squadron, so we. I, I don't know if we were there similar times or not, but I've met rain a couple times just through air show stuff. Yeah, yeah. He was leaving right when I kind of showed up, um, but he's separated from active duty now, living the good life. Right? <laughs> yeah, flying FedEx. <laughs> yeah, I think he's... I he did a good job of exiting like right after the demo team and taking the really fun, cool parts of the job, which is like the stuff with the kids and inspiring everyone and like transitioning it. Right. So I think he did that well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So being in this job specifically, a lot of people ask me like, how did you become a Thunderbird? Were you like a kid when you were five years old that saw the team fly and was like, I'm going to do that. Uh, and really I kind of just stumbled into it, which is kind of joking, but not really. <laughs> I grew up in a small town in North central Wisconsin, and we did not have any air shows there. There weren't any military bases nearby. Um, I didn't have any immediate family that were in the military at all. So I didn't really have any exposure to it. Uh, I was a good student growing up and, you know, like halfway through high school, my parents, who were super hard workers, like middle-class family. They're like, Hey, we don't have a college fund to just pay for your college. And you probably don't want to be in a, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of debt. So let's start talking about scholarship options. And my dad suggested he had gone to the university of Wisconsin, Madison and seen the ROTC program there. He wasn't part of it, but he had seen the cadets running around. He like knew of it. He's like, I think he would do really well in this. And my first reaction was, heck no, I do not want to be in the military. I don't want to wear a uniform. I want to be a normal college kid and do all the normal college things. And like my, you know, knee jerk reaction was no, like, that's not for me. Here we are like (laughs) 12 years later. Uh, um, But the more we looked into it, he's like, let's at least look into it and go visit an ROTC detachment and check it out. So I learned more about it. And I was like, there's some pretty cool things you can do. And I didn't want to stay in that small town I grew up in. It's like 4,000 people. And it was a great way to travel the world. And I was just a really adventurous kid and driven. And the more I looked into it, the more I was like, well, this would actually probably be a good fit. And then you're talking about different branches of the military and quality of life. Uh, that is one reason I picked the Air Force. The Air Force, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, right. The Chair Force. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah right. I mean, everyone will say like the Marines are going to be out sleeping in the dirt and the army is going to be in a tent and the air force is going to be in, like you said, the four seasons. Um, and that's kind of joking, but, but kind of true. Yeah. All the air force bases I've ever visited had like seven golf courses. I stayed on a really nice base down in Hawaii. 
yeah. like a private bungalow with a private beach for 40 bucks a night, something like that. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, it was super, super nice. And in the cafeteria, someone actually took my tray for me after I finished eating. Oh yeah. I was like, what are you doing? And they're like, aren't you done with your food? I'm like, but you're taking this for me. <laughs> I was like, what, what you guys have people for that? <laughs> yeah. No. That's, all, that's totally. funny that that's what stuck out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're taking my tray. Why? <laughs> if I could, if I could go back, I'd probably, go, I'd probably go to the air force. Air force. Yeah. yeah. Hands down. You know, I'd yeah, so peanut we, butter jelly. Yeah. We all give each other a hard time about it, but I think like once you've been in for a while, you're like, well, it is nice to not, sleep in a tent right like, yeah yeah so and then aviation was something that i wanted to do but didn't have the opportunity to do when i was younger i there was a small airport in my hometown and i told my parents i wanted to take flying lessons and they were kind of just like yeah that's it sounds expensive and like we that was the end of the conversation and it never really happened i thought when i was applying to an rtc scholarship if i was going to be in the military i wanted to do something challenging exciting and flying kind of just naturally fell into that category. And I loved roller coasters. I loved like climbing trees and jumping off things. And like, I was just that kid that my mom would turn her back for five seconds and then she'd be like, Oh, Oh God, she's, she's up, up in the tree. tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you and I are the same. <laughs> yeah. Then it was off to the races and I did ROTC on a scholarship, which was amazing. I made such good friends there. And I was a super shy, introverted kid, and it really forced me outside of my comfort zone. And I grew a ton in the four years I was at college. So that was, it was awesome. It was great that that program really helped with that. And then I got a pilot slot out of there. And when I went to pilot training, it was kind of the same thing. I was like, well, if I'm going to be a pilot, I want to fly something fun and exciting and fast and go upside down. So I put F-16s first on my list and here we are. Sweet. Wow. How competitive is it to get a flight slot, a pilot slot out of ROTC? It really ebbs and flows depending where the Air Force is at with their need for pilots. So when I was graduating, which was in 2009, I think my class got six or seven. And that was honestly about how many people actually wanted them. So it worked out pretty well. Um, but I know there's years where it's less or it's more and I think every class kind of varies how many people want it and how many don't. Um, turns out not everyone in the Air Force is a pilot or wants to be a pilot. Right. Uh, surprise. Surprise. Uh, but yeah, it's fairly competitive, though. You can't, you need to be like in the top, I would say, third of your class or so to be competitive. They aren't going to send someone who's bottom of their class, even if they had a spot um, mm -hmm. to flight school, because I think they're kind of setting them up for failure. Mm -hmm. How does it work with ROTC? Is there like morning formations every morning? Do you have kind of do like a part-time job or how does that work? Being in a university, doing the ROTC program. Yeah, exactly. So my dad brought that scholarship opportunity up and I was like, heck no, I don't want to do that. I did not realize how much of a balance you actually can have as like a normal college student and an ROTC cadet. So for us, I think we did like morning PT twice a week. So you'd go work out together, which was early, but I mean, it's two mornings a week. That's not very like that much of a time commitment. And then you do what's called leadership lab, which is a couple hours, one day a week. I think every detachment does it at a different time, but that's when all the cadets from all the different uh, grades, like so freshman through senior are all together to do stuff like marching and problem solving and just all kinds of stuff. Um, that's kind of like the heart of the detachment is that leadership lab every week. And then you have a class just like you would any college class. That's once a week. 
that's specific to your year in ROTC. And you're learning all kinds of stuff from like military history to how rank works, the customs and courtesies, like all the basic stuff you need to go in as a lieutenant when you finally graduate. So it's a couple days a week that you're in uniform. And when you're not going to those courses, you're in normal clothes, you're a normal student, you're living on campus or off campus or whatever. So it's, it was pretty awesome. I think it's a good deal. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty legit. What percentage decides not to go active after they graduate? Do you think? So I've heard that it's been way more selective lately, just with the demands of the air force. When I went through, it was after sophomore year, you had that summer commitment where you basically went through basic training um, for a month and once you had done that, you're committed at that point. Um, you need to like finish the program and then you're going to owe the Air Force four years. Um, I don't know what the dropout rate was from people who entered as a freshman to those who actually finished as a senior. There were definitely a few every year that would continue for whatever reason. But it was a pretty good percentage that made it um, from my class that started to who I actually commissioned with four years later. You graduated and did you go straight to flight school or straight to active duty? What was your path after you graduated? Yeah. So I know this varies all the time. Uh, you'll probably hear about like casual lieutenants where they just send them to a base to do some random job until flight school spot is open. Uh, we had a break just with when they could fit everyone into the flight training pipeline. So I graduated in May with a four-year degree commissioned as lieutenant. And then I didn't have a report date to my first base until November. So mm -hmm. I have like six months where I'm not getting paid. I have no job. What did you I'm do? Casual. <laughs> yeah. So this, I, I was like a waitress and this was one of my most fun jobs ever. I worked at an apple orchard as an apple picker. What? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I got paid cash every morning. Shh, don't tell the IRS. Yeah. Like, oh, secret save with us. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm a lieutenant in, in the Air Force about to go to flight training and I'm picking apples and getting like stung by bees and stuff. And then in the fall, <laughs> I get to be part of their haunted house and like run their haunted corn maze <laughs> and like shoot pumpkins out of this giant sling. It was such a fun job. I loved it. It was like a nice break before flight training, which is pretty really stressful intense. started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> wow. An apple picker. I bet you guys had some bomb apple cider though. <laughs> it was good, right? Yeah. I, I my <laughs> sure. for apples. Now I'm an apple snob. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best? Honey crisp? <laughs> Honey crisp are where it's at for sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I spend about 10 minutes at the grocery store picking up every single one. Like, nope, that's not the perfect one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, it has to be like at the bottom where you're like playing a Jenga, you know, with the apples. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I want that one the down apple. there. It's going to start an avalanche of apples into exactly. the grocery store. <laughs> apple avalanche. <laughs> so you would be uh, the one that I would hate when I was working at Stater Brothers in yep. the produce section. I'd yep, yep. Like, I'd be like, Psh. That girl right there <laughs> should be banned for life. <laughs> yeah, it was a great summer. It's a summer I'll remember forever, for sure. So I, I, don't, I have no regrets on that decision for six months. Yeah, <laughs> heck no. Where was the apple picking? Like, what state did you... Uh... So it was in Wisconsin. Oh, gotcha. It was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, if anyone's familiar. But uh, it was beautiful in the summer. It was great. I'm a big fan of the outdoors, so I just like being outside. It was nice. Nice. There was a job I was looking at. And it was called Devil's Lake on uh, North Dakota. 
and there's a Devil's Lake, Wisconsin. And when I looked it up online, I was like, why does nobody ever want to get this job? And when I put it up on Google, I just put Devil's Lake and it auto-populated Wisconsin. And I was like, man, that looks beautiful. What? What is wrong is with this beautiful. job? Yeah. And I'm like starting ready, getting ready to apply. And I'm telling my friends, hey, dude, there's like $15,000 bonus. You know, if you just sign up, they give you a $15,000 stipend, blah, 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 blah. And then I auto, like I, I, this time I actually put North Dakota in it. And there was like a half submerged truck and a dead tree and a lake, you know? And I was like, I was like, I was like, oh my God. I was like, wrong double lake. <laughs> wrong, wrong one, man. And then I could start seeing why nobody go under that job. And I'm like, I don't mean to offend everybody in Devil's Lake, North Dakota, but gotta, if it sounds too good gotta, to be true, gotta update those Google pics. <laughs> could you imagine if a town just put up some stock images of just this beautiful area and the EMS companies are like, yeah, we have pilot housing, a 14 and 14 schedule. Yeah. Sign up with us. You get a $20,000 bonus. And then they just put all these beautiful images. We're like, well, we never said that that was actually your base. (laughs) (laughs) You catfished me. (laughs) EMS EMS base catfish. EMS base catfish. (laughs) So typically with these helicopter EMS jobs, the ones that give you the most benefits are usually the ones that are in the middle of nowhere that nobody else wants to go to and the less desirable less desirable locations typically. So the more benefits and like awesome things that they're offering, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere where nobody <laughs> wants to go. <laughs> Just yep. trying to reel you in. Come on, we'll give you more money. <laughs> crazy so it's almost never worth it yeah you know uh, a lot of people just go ahead and do those jobs for a year or so and then they can you know transfer within the company to a better base or i've never worked that part of ems but just from what i've heard from friends that that are in it right now and how was flight school did you pick it up right away were you the total badass student right off the cuff or it was one of my favorite years, I think, in my career, but one of the hardest. I think a lot of people feel that way when they're done with it. Uh, I went into flying for the Air Force with zero civilian time. Okay. Like, I had ridden in a Cessna once. <laughs> and the guy's like, here, you can fly for a second, do a turn. And I was like, okay. That was, like, my flight experience outside of being a passenger yeah. on a commercial airline. Uh, so uh, there's intro um, or initial flight screening, which is like a one month program out in Pueblo, Colorado. And you learn to fly the DA-20. That was probably the hardest course I did in the Air Force, even though the content's not that hard when you look at it in the big spectrum of learning to fly the F-16 and becoming an instructor in that. Um, But coming from no technical or mechanical background and no flight time, it was just like trying to drink from a fire hose. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to learn the systems of this aircraft. I don't understand how an oil system works. I don't understand aerodynamics. Like it's all new, not to mention like trying to learn to talk on the radio and just all, all of the things. Yeah. Um, so that felt like an uphill battle and there, it was super stressful. There just wasn't enough time in the day. I would stay up super late, just sitting in the little simulator practicing my ground op, writing out every radio call I was going to make, practicing it so that I didn't push the button and turn my brain off like everyone does when they're new to flying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then once I, I felt like I was about to wash out the entire time. Uh, But when I left, the day I'm leaving, I said something about that to one of the instructors and he's like, you did really well. And I was like, wait, what? 
this entire time I felt like I was uh, just barely keeping my head above water. I honestly thought that I might be out of my league and I might not be in the right career for a while during that program. I was like, I might not be able to do this. Uh, and then I got to actual undergraduate pilot training, the year long program in Columbus, Mississippi. And it started off with all the academics and lots of taking tests and learning in the simulator. And I've just always been a good test taker. And I was a really good student growing up. My parents really emphasized that and how important it was. So I think I had good like time management skills and study habits already. So I just did really well on the academic portion. And I think that kind of got me ahead of the power curve. So when we did start flying, it was not as hard of a transition as it was for some other people who struggled with that first phase. And I, I did well all through pilot training. I didn't really have any point where I was like, this phase is especially hard compared to others. And I think I'm going to fail out or anything like that, which I wouldn't say is the norm. I think it's a tough program um, and it's kind of a steep learning curve. And I just got lucky that I had that foundation of good habits and, you know, it was, good at memorizing things because there's a lot of that. Uh, and then I did get airsick and the left hand, right hand just came pretty quickly for me. Um, and I actually found the follow on training, learning to fly the F 16 a lot harder than I did, um, the year of undergraduate pilot training. How big are your classes, um, when you're doing, uh, the training? Yeah. So I think for pilot training, I believe we had like 25 people in our class and then when I went off to the B course, which is the F-16 specific training out in Phoenix at Luke Air Force Base, I think we had 18 people in our class. Oh, wow. Yeah, nice. it's pretty big. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty, it's pretty big, big class. Did you know that you wanted to fly the F-16? Was that initially the bird? You were like, yes, that's what I want to go for when you were going through training? So partway through the ROTC program, we went and did a base visit, went down to Tyndall in Florida, and I saw some F-15s flying. And that was like my first exposure to fighter aircraft. And that was when I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like you could see the afterburner, you could like feel it vibrating in your chest. It was just a visceral reaction. I was like, holy crap, I want to do that. So that was kind of the point where I was like, I want to fly fighters. Um, and then through pilot training, I was just kind of learning more about what the different mission sets were. And there are a few instructors there from various airframes and talking to them. And honestly, right up until we submitted our dream sheet where you get to list all your preferences of aircraft, I went back and forth between the A-10 and the F-16. I was just like, I want both of these. Which one? Which one? Um, and I ended up putting F-16s first because I wanted to fly fast and be aerobatic and all of that. But the A-10 has a really cool mission. So that's why I was kind of hung up on that for a while. But I would have been happy with either one. The A-10 is my favorite. I love the A-10 Warhog. Yeah, that would probably be the plane I would fly if I was in the Air Force. I mean, it's pretty cool. Uh, funny story about that. I met my husband on Bumble the first year I was on the team, <laughs> like right after I moved to Vegas. And I don't know if you're familiar with Bumble, but... Yep. The woman has to make the first. <laughs> yeah, <very> familiar. <laughs> the woman has to make the first move. So you have to like, I forget exactly how it works. You have to like, like swipe, right, swipe, whatever. The one that says, yes, I like this person. Um, and then you have a certain amount of time to talk to them. And I had like clicked on my husband's profile and I was like, yeah. And then I saw his profile picture and I was like, he's really good looking. Like I'm kind of intimidated. Should I message him? Should I not? 
and there's like this little extend thing that they can use. And he extended and I was like, well, I guess he must actually be interested. So then I sent him a message and I have zero idea what I said, something generic and dumb. And he, in my profile, I said I was a pilot in the Air Force, but I didn't say what I flew. Mm-hmm. And he responded and he was like, oh, you're a pilot in the Air Force. What do you fly? And I was like, F-16s. And this is like his second message to me ever. It was like, that's cool, but I really prefer the A-10. Uh- <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, what? <laughs> and it was actually refreshing because it got really old, like trying to date and being a female fighter pilot and people just being like, all I want to talk about is your job. It's so cool. Like I was a little kid and I just loved fighter airplanes. And I was like, bro, like we're not at an air show right now. I'm like, we just have a normal conversation. Uh, turns out he was in the Marines in Fallujah. So he has a special place in his heart for A-10s. Um, um, but yeah. Yeah. That's um, yeah. Well, I, I was, I've been all, off and on Bumble, you know, and you're right. It's like the only thing that guys ever want to talk about. And as soon as the first thing that they say to me is, when do I get to ride in your helicopter? I'm like, just go away. <laughs> you know? And um, so I did a little experiment because there was a good period of time that I wasn't really getting any hits. I'm like, what's going on? Like, why does nobody like me? I don't understand. And uh, I switched my occupation. I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to do a little social experiment here. And I changed it from helicopter pilot to like a director of my nonprofit. And I, I took off all the pictures of me flying and I just put cute pictures on there. Just, you know, me in normal everyday life, whatever. And overnight I had like 30 hits and I was like, wow. But I changed it back. So I was like, you know what, if you know, the person that I'm supposed to be with, if they have a problem with me being a pilot and feel intimidated by that, then they're just not the person I'm supposed to be with. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, you're probably going to get a lot of quantity, but not quality. If you, just take it off of there. Cause I think that's a good litmus test for whether people are going to be supportive of someone that's like kicking ass just as much or more than they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you picked the F-16 super dope, you know, at our event the other day we had the air force, they brought out their virtual reality F-16 uh, flight simulator. They're like, do you want to try it out? I'm like, yeah, but I, I'm really nervous because if I do really poorly on this, I'm going to look really bad. And I did so bad. Did you really? Well, I also was getting kind of sick. I, my stomach was kind of like, oh, even just, just being in the simulator. Uh, but, but it was super cool because you, you get to fly through this canyon and you get to shoot at targets and you kind of follow the leader and you go through different hoops. And I don't know if you've ever played on the sim that you guys have i haven't i we're i always see it out there but we're always like lumping to the next set shows so i never get to go over there but i can i we have a vr headset that we use for training and it makes me feel motion sick even though i've never gotten motion sick in the jet yeah yeah and yeah the guys were like so how'd you do and i'm like don't look at my stats (laughs) i was like i'm really busy i'm like i'm like oh it was super cool i'm putting on the event okay gotta go (laughs) nothing to see here i'm like covering up the the scoreboard like don't look over here they're like you know you're supposed to hit the targets (laughs) did you try it Mm -mm. no i didn't oh man yeah that that's the thing when when you're putting on an event like a big event it, it kind of feels like it's your wedding where you just plan six months for a big party for other people, but you don't get to take your time doing all the things that you even put together yourself. You just are being spread so thin. I didn't get to indulge in a lot of the other stuff. 
I was just kind of working. Working the event, yeah. So there was this little girl. She's nine years old. I don't know if you saw on my Instagram story the little girl with the flight suit on. Oh, I did, yeah. Yeah, she was so cute. So she comes up. I was like, how did you did you fly the flight simulators? And she was like, yeah, but I don't like the Cessna. That's boring. I want to go fast, and it doesn't even go upside down. <laughs> <laughs> So she was like, awesome. she was all about the F-16 flight simulator. We have some videos of her flying it and she was killing it. And uh, yeah, she was like, well, I'm nine, but I'm about to turn 16. So I'm going to go <laughs> to flight school. <laughs> Is that what she said? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah cute. Videos. that's cute. Really, really cute. That's so amazing. There were some adorable kids there. I was like, man, I wish Mace was, or Michelle was here. Oh my God, I just like hit myself in the head with my microphone. Uh, I was like, oh man, it would be so cool if Michelle was here because he'd be such an inspiration for her. You came to mind. Yeah, I was, I was bummed. Those events are super fun and they've been really limited this season with a lot of shows kind of limiting their in-person contact. We've been doing like drive-in air shows and it's, it's just not the same as it was in 2019 yeah. when it was a normal season. Um, so I do miss those events because those little girls, you can tell like the ones that, already know exactly what they want to do and they can't wait to tell you about it and they're mm-hmm. just like little firecrackers and they come up <laughs> like this one girl came up to me and she's like i'm gonna take your job yeah. oh. <laughs> like, <"That's> awesome. <laughs> like i said i was a shy kid like i would have been way too intimidated to walk up to a thunderbird pilot and just be like what's up i'm gonna do that someday i would have been like the one cowering behind my mom's leg like can you sign this but i love it yeah that's cool i wish i it looked like it was a huge success for especially for it being the first one yeah we got the whole event filled so it worked out really really well overall very very big success and everyone's just asking about the next one and the next one and you know when are we doing this again and so hopefully um you know, the plan is to kind of start this program around the country and have an ambassador program where other people who are representatives of the nonprofit can put on these little aviation days, you know, smaller ones for the community kind of a thing and just getting kids there and getting them inspired to go into aviation someday. Yeah, I'm sure we could do one in Vegas. I'd love to help you guys out with that. Like, do the controls get super hot inside those F-16s up there at Nellis during the summertime? Do you guys put stuff over the panels and the controls to help out with that? I could imagine. Yeah. So there's like leather covers that go over the seat and the hood and stuff, but everything gets so... It, I mean, when it's like 110 to, I think earlier this year we were home and it was like 117 and we we're flying local flights in the afternoon our takeoff time was like three o'clock i'm like oh why God, this is why? terrible yeah. you mean 3 a.m okay cool i'm down with that <laughs> but you like can't touch any any metal surface will no kidding burn you like the ladder will burn you the sides of the jet so we're trying to do like practice our show launch what we do in front of a crowd and that involves like us like rippling down the line as we drop into the seats but until it's like your turn to drop you're like holding yourself up on the rails which are metal and so you're just like oh yeah do you leave your helmet the, on the flight line <laughs> yeah so, so the helmet's face. sitting on the rail and it's just it's just heating up and then, I mean, we put all those on in order and then we close the canopy and the jet's starting up, but it takes a couple minutes for everything to come online and for the ECS that blows the cold air, cold, 
it's coldish on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a couple minutes for that to get going. So that time frame when it's 115 out, which means on the ramp and the tarmac with the jets running, it's probably like 130. Ugh. And you have a helmet on and a G suit and a flight suit, and you're in a jet with the canopy closed, which acts as like a greenhouse. It yeah, uh, those few minutes are torture. I hate that part. You're just soaked in sweat for the rest of the flight. But once we get airborne, it works pretty well and it cools down in there. Do you at least have a camel pack of water that you can drink while you're flying or do you just have to tough it out? Well, they're pretty short flights mm-hmm. for a demo practice that we go through the gas so fast. So it's only like 45 minutes to an hour. So I'll have like an insulated bottle with ice and stuff in it that I'll leave with my crew chiefs on the ground. And if I have to like step to a spare aircraft or something, I'll just like chug some of it in between ground ops. Um, but I don't take anything in the jet because there's not really a good place to store it. And like going upside down and stuff, everything has to be like really stowed away uh, or it'll oh, be flying yeah. around the cockpit. So I know some of the guys in the diamond, um, one through four, they aren't, you know, flying inverted as much and they can kind of jam a water bottle in the cockpit somewhere. But for the solos and myself and number six, we just do a lot of inverted flight with a little bit of negative G and like aggressive rolls and stuff and anything that's not really buttoned down is going to be flying around the cockpit. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine just, uh, you forget that you do have a water bottle in there and you're doing your training and all of a sudden you just see a water bottle floating in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) Oh, there are my sunglasses. (laughs) You see it on the the GoPro as it gets uploaded to YouTube. You just see a floating water bottle. (laughs) That has happened. Not with a water bottle, but I mean, it it does happen occasionally. You'll find something when you flip upside down. You're like, ah. That's where that was. That's where it was. <laughs> I found it. Let me let me grab that quick and try to find somewhere to stuff it. How was um? I don't, I don't know what they call it. Is it a G machine or you know where you practice the centrifuge? Like, the, yes. Oh, How was yeah. that a torture device? It's the worst <laughs> thing ever invented. Uh, now, I think it's bad because you're doing it as an initial training, so you don't really have exposure a lot to the G's that you're going to experience at the centrifuge so it's kind of new you do get used to them to some extent and then everyone talks it up like if you you know g-lock during this you're not going to pass you're going to get removed from the training pipeline so then you're stressing out and then it's just it's artificial right you're at the end of this arm and then when you stop capsule tilts and you get like tumble vertigo in your inner ear so a lot of people throw up afterwards which you don't get that in the jet Mm-hmm. So like when you stop, a lot of people like put their hand on the ceiling of the capsule, like trying to steady themselves because their inner ear is just tumbling. Um, so that gets a lot of people, but it's, it's stressful. It's not fun. I'm glad I, I had to go twice. Like initially when I went to the T-38, which is the fighter track of pilot training, it's a jet trainer. And I think we went up to seven G's on that profile. And then when I selected F-16s, I had to go again and do the nine G profile. Dang. So I'm, I will happily never go back there. Did you get a video a of it? Place. So I I have a disc with it on there, but I, I just opened it recently because I was like, oh, I want to share these videos because it's like funny to look back on now. And for some reason, it only has like the 6G profile on it. Oh, like they no. never uploaded my 9G stuff. So it's, it's really pixelated, bad quality. You don't realize how much better video technology has gotten mm-hmm. since like 2010, 2011. Uh, so it's just not very good quality. It's only six G's. So I'm sure somewhere in some Air Force 
like database, there's a video of my 9G profile, but I do not have a copy of it, unfortunately. You make 6G sound like super Like nothing. Easy. Yeah, he's yeah, like, that's only, only 6G's. 6Gs. I would have been like, get me out of here. I think I've pulled four <laughs> at the most, you know, doing the decathlon, but yeah, that was that was it. And I was messed up for, for the whole day. I uh, I didn't do well doing the aerobatic stuff. I I've tried I tried a couple of aerobatic flights. It's like maybe I just get used to it, you know. And yeah, I threw up. I was like, how do people just do this all the time? And everyone's just saying you just got to keep going. You got to keep doing it. Keep doing it. I'm like I don't know if I want to keep doing this. I'm right. miserable. I'm eating a piece of toast and I can't even hold it down. Yeah, it sucked, which sucks because I love doing aerobatic. Like I love the act of, you know, flying up inverted and doing loops and it's just so much fun. But yeah, for some reason, my body just does not appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's just kind of luck of the draw. Definitely in pilot training, there's always a handful in every class that really struggle with motion sickness mm-hmm. and they'll put them in the have you heard of the barony chair where they spin you mm. and it just like messes up your inner ear? And so you, you do that in physiology when you're kind of like in the academic phase, it's this chair and they'll just spin you in it. And it's like got a barrier around it. You put your arms on and then they'll stop it. And like you put your head up and your eyes are just like going back and forth super fast. And it's to like desensitize you to mm. the inner ear tumbling feeling that makes a lot of people sick. And luckily I just never had issues with it, but there were some guys in my class who would throw up every flight and talk about grit. Like in pilot training, it's a hard program to begin with. But one of the guys that was in the top of my class, he crushed it. He threw up like every flight for like the first four months or something. And I was just like, to just keep pushing and he eventually got past it. But it was actually pretty impressive. Yeah. So I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about your training with the Thunderbirds, like your first experience of getting into the team. And do you all get high? I mean, I guess it's just whenever a spot opens up, they put someone new on or does a whole new team get hired all at once? You said, cause it's a two year billet. Uh, so do you get a fresh team every two years or is it kind of a rolling type of a thing? So it's rolling. So there's some overlap. So you really need that continuity and experience to help train the new pilots as they come in. So about half of the uh, officers are switching out each year. So let's see, when I applied, we were hiring for boss. So the number one position, the number eight position, the solo, and then one of the wingmen, which was number three at the time. Um, So there's one through six are who flies in the actual demo when you see the six jets flying. So usually anytime you'd go see the team, it's half of those pilots first year and half of them second year. Um, so there's some continuity there. Um, so we actually just did a hiring cycle a couple months ago. You know, we put out the, the hiring message around Christmas time, January timeframe, everyone submits their applications and then we go through those and we see who we want to bring out in person. And then they come on the road and get to see what an air show weekend is like, cause the job is not for everyone. And so we want to, you know, give them some exposure to the behind the scenes, what a weekend actually looks like for us before they are already hired. And they're like, well, I hate this. Dang, now I'm here for two years. Um, so they'll come out and then we just get to kind of hang out and like get to know everyone's personalities, see who's a good fit with who. We are together all the time. 
So you need to make sure there's not going to be personalities that are going to create a lot of conflict because that can be a huge deal with being on the road all the time. And a lot of trust is required, obviously, for what we do. Um, so we go through that. And then we do formal interviews with them as well, put them on the spot, ask them all the questions. That's the scary part. Uh, and then we hire from there. And it's like a whole person package. It's everything from their flying ability and their performance reports to uh, letters written by their commanders or just like calling around to people that we know that work with them currently. I mean, like, you know, what is this person like to hang out with? What, how are they in the jet? Like just getting a feel for their personality to then specifically, will their personality fit into the spot that's open? Like, would they make a good solo pilot or would they make a good diamond like wingman pilot? And all of that goes into it. And then you have to even look further down the road and be like, well, if we put them in the wing, then two years from now, we're going to have a new Thunderbird one. And so that person's going to be the experienced person at that point, training the new like leader of the team. Like you need a personality that can do that. And yeah, so there's a lot that goes into getting hired. And we announced the new hires, uh, I guess, a couple months ago now. And this is me being biased, but I'm super excited that there's another female pilot joining the team. So when nice. I leave, there won't be like a five-year gap like there was last time. Um, so that's cool. So she'll be in the position to, you know, really inspire those little girls, which I'm glad they're going to have someone they can look up to uh, once I'm no longer on the team. Amazing. And how was it first flying in formation with the team and doing all these really close formation flights? Was it a little nerve wracking at first? And did you jump right into it and you're like, oh, I got this? Or do you guys fly in? I don't know. Do you, do you go right into formation flying or do you do things you do in the simulator? Flying, right? You do a lot of chair flying from what I see, like on TV. The formation stuff, we do some basic stuff in the simulator to kind of develop the cross check of what you need to look at when it's different than uh, in like a gray unit. But the simulator is not good for flying demo maneuvers because you don't get the G's. The stuff we do is just really aggressive with that. And then trying to fly formation in the simulator, you just can't see and feel like the changes that are so tiny that you need to. So we don't really have any sim rides that are part of our syllabus. So we kind of jump right into it. Um, but for me as a solo, like I would go out with the lead solo at the time that was leaving and I learned all my single ship maneuvers. So if you've ever seen the show, um, we do some single ship maneuvers to kind of showcase what the F-16 can really do. And that's all done by five and six. So I'll do like the max G turn and I'll do climb, uh, vertical rolls where I'll go in like 150 feet and then go straight vertical up to 15,000 feet, like just a few seconds. My favorite maneuver. It's super fun to fly. Um, but to really just showcase what the jet can do. Um, so we learn the single ship stuff first and everyone is terrible at all of them when you start it's just not the kind of flying that you've been doing previously in your career as an f-16 pilot you're really like a sensor operator like the the left hand right hand of physically flying the jet is just an afterthought it just becomes second nature and you know you're trying to figure out how to target air to air or you're in a wheel doing close air support trying to like figure out how to run your targeting pod and talk to the guys on the ground and like monitor the situation there and deconflict from other aircraft that are stacked up in a wheel with you over whatever the target is. And the physical flying is pretty easy. That's just second nature. It's not taking much of your concentration. It's everything else that's taking all your concentration. Um, but then coming to the team, it's the complete opposite. Like we don't do anything tactical mm -hmm. and it's all left hand, right hand. 
So it takes a while to kind of transition to that. And like in the F-16, normally we, we never use the rudder airborne, like ever. But on the team, I'm full rudder deflection many times throughout the flight. And we never fly inverted. There's like no reason to. And normally have stuff in your cockpit to be flying all over like we talked about. Mm-hmm. But on the team, I'm flying inverted all the time. And I'm pulling a lot of Gs all the time. It just takes a ton of repetition to get good at that stuff. And then the formation stuff, you start kind of in what we call like a chase position. So a little bit further away and like aft from where you see us um, in the show. And you just start with like further and further bank turns. So Whifferdale's going up to like 90 degrees. And then you do a full barrel roll and eventually you'll do a full loop. And we'll just do them over and over and you just move it in tighter and tighter until you can finally like stay in formation. And then we eventually bring everyone together to be able to do that. But the formation flying is not a walk in the park. It's still hard. Like if it's a bumpy day or it's high density altitude or whatever it is, it, you, yeah, I'm like working hard, be real sweaty and tired by the end of the demo. Yeah. I would imagine. Wow. That's so crazy. I couldn't even imagine. How how close are you guys? Like really wing to wing. The diamond gets the closest during the pass interview that they do as a four ship. This is four jets. And they're as close as 18 inches apart. What? And then, yeah. What? Yeah. It's, so that maneuver is real stable. Uh, and they've just worked really hard to get it tighter and tighter. And we have a pretty experienced team this year since we don't have anyone new. And so the team is real dialed in right now. So it's looking really good. Um, when we're all together and number six and I are on the wings, we're three feet apart roughly. Um, and you're constantly making corrections. Like I'm sure you've seen some of the cockpit footage that we put out on social media. Everyone thinks like when you watch it, all six of us, which we call the Delta, you watch the Delta loop where the Delta roll and people are like, wow, they look just like welded wing. Like they don't move at all. And then you see the perspective from the cockpit, especially on outriggers on the way on the ends, which is where I fly. And we're number six flies on the other side. And we are like constantly moving the throttle and constantly adjusting and bouncing all over the place. But it's just such tiny amounts that it's not perceptible from the ground, but it's definitely perceptible to us. It's a, you're constantly making corrections. That sounds so intense. Yeah. 18 inches. It's hard to kind of fathom how that works aerodynamically with the airfoils being so close to each other and the air passing through. It it doesn't seem possible that that could happen, you know, just with the air going over the top of the wing and the other wing being right on top of it. Yeah. So you can feel, yeah, you can feel the other jet there and boss, especially being out on the point with a wingman on each wing. Uh, if one person is closer than the other, his jet will get pushed that direction. Like Got if it. the guy on the left side is too close, he'll it'll physically push the number one jet so to you, the right. You can feel that. Yep. And you have like an abort plan where if someone's you know feels that it's not stable anymore, do you guys have a safe word where you all break off in different directions? Yeah, like, abort mission, and then just <laughs> you know, separate from each other. <laughs> Yeah, it's called so kind of no. <laughs> <laughs> not quite to that extreme. The exploding cantaloupe is what we like joke about that. Um, but there's not many situations where you'd react that aggressively. So there's like abort spread um, where everyone would just like rudder out. But usually it's only one person experiencing whatever the thing is. Like if we go through some wind shear or something, the person, you know, that's, on the side that everyone's shifting towards, you can get like really tight quickly. And 
you can honestly just give a tiny bit of rudder away and you're like moving away from them and you're not going to hit each other. And honestly, the crowd can't even tell. Sometimes we have very traumatic moments for us where we land and we're like, Oh my gosh, that loop was so sketchy. And then you, we watch on the video and we're like, Oh, Oh, it looks great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No one else was experiencing the terror that I was in that like split second when I got like a wing dip towards me or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, it's usually a small correction that you just have to react to. They do get bigger when we're all six together. I fly off of number two, who's flying off of number one. So if number two has one of those moments where he's like, oh man, and he's like quick rudder away, then I'm on the end of the whip, right? So my reaction has to be bigger than his. And sometimes we'll get a bit out of the formation for a second. And it is noticeable to people on the ground, but we're pretty good at trying not to overreact and, you know, moving as much as we need to, but not so much that it's like, a moment of panic and the crowd's like, what is that jet doing? Yeah. They're probably like, oh, man, they suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Not yeah. said no one I ever. Mean, that's, <laughs> that's the social media comments, right? You're rolling. Someone's like, Oh, that person's wide or so someone comes blue angels are better. Pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the blue angels. I just take that. It's like a friendly rivalry, whatever. So it'll be like, Go Navy. I'm like, cool. Sure. Whatever. Uh, and we work with the blue angels a decent amount. We just did a joint show with them. We've done a couple. So we know all of them and it's a friendly rivalry. Um, there's, I feel like it's like talking about two football teams that are rivals. Like there's always going to be the people that like this team and there's always going to be people that like this team and that's totally fine. But the people that roll in with the mean comments, like, you shouldn't even be on the team. Look how wide you are. And then you like go to the profile and they're like eating chips in their mom's basement. Like, oh, Standard cool, troll. <laughs> have you, have you heard about this uh, new augmented reality technology that they're coming out with? The uh, red six company, they're doing uh, augmented reality for the cockpit to train fighter pilots. Uh, I haven't experienced in person. I've heard about it. Um, and we actually are trying to bring VR into our training as well because, and this is kind of the first hiring cycle that we're doing that where we actually have the VR headsets and we took GoPro footage from our shows, like 360 footage. And then we took HUD footage and we paired them together and we have like sent them out to our new hires so they can be at home before they even move to, out to Vegas and start flying with the team. Cool. They can like That's sit cool. and they can fly through a whole show in their position. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, it's not going to replace the hands-on flying, but still to like have that exposure and know what radio calls are happening when and like what the reference of the other jet actually looks like before you actually get in the cockpit and are starting to burn through all those flights in training season. I mean, it's huge to have that, that step ahead before they even show up. Wow. It's so cool the direction things are going. Yeah. I mean, it's going to just be that much safer you know, that much cheaper <laughs> for training uh, when I'm people be, get a leg up like that. I'm going to be a truck driver in about 10 years when everything's automated. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like push play on Netflix yeah. and relax. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like, oh, well, I guess Top Gun was right. I better get that truck driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But. We were just talking about the other day, I mean, Vegas has really bad drivers as I'm sure you've experienced and I'm sure they're in LA and they're everywhere. Um, but I was talking to the other solo pilot and I was like, man, and people talk about like 
flying cars in the future. Can you imagine if we put your average Joe Schmo driver in a three-dimensional car? I was like, this will never happen because it's not a technology limitation. It's a person limitation. It'd have to be fully automated. automated. People would be crashing into each other all the time. I think it will be. What would you say has been the most rewarding part of, of what you do? You've flown you know, a ton of combat missions over in Afghanistan, 163 combat hours. So, and then now you fly for the Thunderbirds. What, what I'm sure every aspect of your job has had its, you know, highs and lows, but uh, for you, what has been the most rewarding part of it? Yeah, it'd be tough to pick between a deployment and the inspiration part of being on the Thunderbirds because those are both rewarding in very different ways. I think, being on the Thunderbirds, especially for three years and being a female pilot on the team is like a very visible position. And I have this opportunity to reach and impact so many girls and women, which is just a really cool role to be in. And I've already seen with having been here this long, some of their stories come full circle. Like there was a girl that messaged me back when I first started the air show circuit in 2019. Um, saying that she was just going to pilot training. She'd just gotten a pilot slot. She was from a small town, had no, it was like, it was me, you know, 10 years later. Uh, she had no flight time and she was stressed out about going into this program. That's super hard. And she just messaged me a few months ago and she's like, Hey, I hadn't talked to her in two years. And she's like, Hey, I just wanted to follow up and let you know how it played out. And she just dropped F-16s. So she's going to be joining our community, wow. which is like, like just so cool to hear. Cause when she had first reached out, she's like, do you have any advice? And, you know, I had talked to her about how to manage time there. And, you know, it's the closest alligator to the boat and not to let it get overwhelming. Cause it definitely can. And, you know, everyone struggles at different points and I've given her all this advice and then she crushed it. So it was so cool to just feel like I might've played like a tiny bit in helping her, you know, make her dream come true. So I think, interactions like that that I get to have in this job are so unique to any other position in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about it. And the schedule does get to be a grind sometimes and you're tired of late in the season. And I definitely get exhausted by the constant like demands of, of thunderbirding because I'm kind of introverted. So just like I was having to be on and smile and talk to people. And, you know, sometimes you just want to be by yourself and eat your lunch and there's always people demanding your time. Um, but those interactions with kids are just, it's hard to describe when you can like talk to them and you see that light bulb moment come on in their eyes and they're like, whoa, like someone that looks like me is doing that at like the highest levels. I want to do that someday. So cool. That's pretty epic. Like just being a, being a mentor, you know, it's, it's very like, I don't know. I just said, it's hard to describe just being a mentor. It just means a lot to somebody. Like to me, I have a couple mentors and it, I could, I could relate to what you're talking about. Just um, having that guidance, you know, and having somebody support you and tell you, hey, this is what you need to do. This is how you can do it. And just don't give up and just keep grinding. And it's going to happen, you know, like just keep working hard. And sooner or later, something's going to break for you. So I think that's pretty cool. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's been cool to like social media has grown so much in that aspect in the last few years that I've have like all these personal interactions with people, they can shoot me a message and I can respond to them. And I think 
they are able to relate and see that we're not just like these robots in blue suits that are unrelatable. And like, that is an unattainable position. Mm -hmm. They see that we have families and that we have hobbies and that we're balancing all the things just like everyone else. And I think that's just a really cool impact uh, to leave behind when I leave the team. I hope that that will continue once I'm gone. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of humanizing the job a little bit, but, you know, still maintaining this level of eliteness that, you know, people can look up to and aspire to. Yeah. Like you said, especially young women, but even just women in general around the globe can look to you for as a source of inspiration. And I think I can speak for women around the globe when we say that we're so proud of you. (laughs) And uh, yeah. That's that's amazing. And congratulations on all of your accomplishments. And uh, I was, you know, I was kind of taken back. I don't even know how you and I started talking, but I just remember being so stoked. I'm like, oh, my God, like the female Thunderbird is talking to me on Instagram. <laughs> I, was so I think st- I laughed out one of your video, like one of your voiceover videos. I think I just responded to how funny it was because they're so funny. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's not just super serious all the time. So I think that's how the conversation got started. Got it. Yeah. I was like, wow, she thinks I'm funny. <laughs> You're all right. You're all right. I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'll tell you what, not everybody appreciates my comedy, my aviation comedy. Some people think, you know, I get, I get some naysayers, you know, people that I've worked for in the past that didn't appreciate the humor, you know, anyways, but yeah, whatever. I get naysayers too. Yeah. Like there's no matter what job you're in, there's going to be the trolls and the naysayers. Yeah. I should not read the comments, but sometimes I do and I get fired up <laughs> and sometimes I respond. I, uh, this one person, I, you know, I was looking back at one of my old videos and there was just one comment that was like, Oh my God, are you serious? You look so dumb. Why are you so stupid? How can you be okay with looking so stupid? I'm like, Oh, (laughs) Oh, I didn't even, I don't remember this comment. Must've blocked it out. (laughs) It was pretty funny. No, I I will say like when I read the comment, I was just like, what? I'm like, what a troll, but it was pretty, it was pretty funny. So mean. He was I mean, a pilot out there in Switzerland or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was a. Uh, it's like I thought you're supposed to be neutral, bro. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, that's funny. <laughs> he was anti-Diane, but that's okay. I'm cool with it. I, I was super stoked that that you interacted with me because you know I I hold you guys up there like you know like I I see Thunderbirds and. You guys are the elite of the elite, and I felt really special that you said something, and now we're here. So here we are. Yeah, here we are. I've been really looking forward to this interview. So it's so cool to hear your story and uh, the ups and downs of the job, and uh, anybody out there who's wanting to go that path, I think you've kind of shown that it's an attainable thing, and kind of paved the way for people to follow you follow in your footsteps if they want to do something like this so that's really cool yeah i hope so that's really the goal you know is to encourage people to chase whatever that dream is even if it's not joining the military or becoming a thunderbird Mm -hmm. i think it just pushes people to do that thing that they see is hard uh and kind of scary and there's a chance of failure because the reward is definitely worth taking that chance 
Uh, what's next for Major Michelle Curran? That's what I'm trying to figure out right now. So normally the Thunderbirds is a two-year gig uh, just because the schedule is pretty pretty busy and for career progression and all the reasons it's only two years. Um, but with COVID happening, all of us that were in our second year during last season got asked to stay for a third year to kind of just give the team more experience since we only did like six air shows last year instead of the normal, like almost 40 different locations that we And so I'm now trying to figure out what's next. And honestly, the flying on this team is super fun and it's been really cool. But like I said a little bit, I, the best part of the job for me is just seeing that I can inspire other people and leave that impact. And so I'm trying to figure out how I can continue to do that after I leave the team. Cause you usually go back to your gray unit squadron. You'll go back to a combat uh, unit and continue to fly either our 16s or whatever airframe you came from uh, before you joined the team. And that's an amazing job with really cool missions. I mean, I deployed doing, doing those missions and it was super rewarding. You work with like the highest caliber people around and it's, it's really cool, but this has given me a little insight into some other things I can do. And I'm just excited to see how I can kind of transition from the team and and keep doing that. So I haven't nailed down exactly how that's going to play out yet, (laughs) but it's definitely uh, a work in progress. So we'll see what happens. Very cool. Yeah. Well, good luck. Yeah. Good luck with everything. And thank you like for coming on and yeah, you are an inspiration senorita. That's a set. And your Bumble story was pretty funny. <laughs> I, I will, I will say, uh, your your Marine husband is right with the A tens. Uh, the A tens are a little closer to my heart, you know. I would have to, yeah, that's yeah. also an inspiration. So Bumble works, yeah, for some people. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good to know. I mean, we we were both in our thirties, and this is our second marriage for both of us. And I have a stepson, and he has a son who's nine, and he's amazing. And like so you think you know i think you get into your 30s especially if you were already married or you have a child or baggage however that looks you're just like man like how do i meet quality people at this point but Mm -hmm. i don't know bumble success story maybe we just got lucky but it's uh worked out really well for us not bad major majorly awesome woman indeed what a cool story I just love hearing pilot stories. <laughs> like everyone has such, well, everyone has such a, could you tell? Uh, everyone has such a unique journey and hers is definitely unique for sure. Like going from ROTC to being an apple picker. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Right. You know, and flying and flying, go to fly Thunderbird, also known as Thunderboard. Thunderboard. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> inside joke, little inside joke. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm so thrilled that she was able to get the permissions to come on this podcast and share her story. And uh, hopefully this inspired anybody out there who is also dreaming of becoming a Thunderbird pilot and seeing what type of a path she was able to take and, and carve out for herself. So really, really awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on the show. All right, you guys, we are now to the end of the episode where we're going to talk about external and internal pressures. We've all experienced them. Those voices inside of our head or that boss or client that's telling us to rush and to get off the ground, make that flight happen, otherwise known as get there-itis. I know we've talked about this before in other podcasts, but how can we recognize when this is happening? How can we prevent it? 
when we rush, that's when bad things happen. And I've personally experienced this sensation and managed to land myself a solid overspeed on a startup procedure that luckily didn't end up worse. But, you know, that's a really hard lesson to learn when all of the holes of the proverbial, you know, Swiss cheese lineup and a mistake gets made. So how do we protect ourselves and how do we check our fellow pilots when we notice that we're going down this path? There are so many jobs in the helicopter world that inherently come with a lot of pressure to get off the ground fast. It could be news gathering, helicopter air ambulance operations, or even an impatient client. We as pilots have to maintain a certain level of preparedness, be calm when on duty, and here are our top three suggestions. Four suggestions. We added one. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Number one. Staying current and proficient with the aircraft that you'll be operating, sometimes we fly multiple platforms, and it can be a lot of information to retain. So it's important to have regular study habits, know your limitations, emergency procedures, and performance. It happens too often that we get complacent after we finish our annual check rides to not return to our study material. Remember, we need to cultivate good habits. Remove some of the heavy last-minute pre-flighting by, even before getting to work, be proactively checking the weather, TFRs, talking to other pilots on duty to get maintenance updates for the aircraft you're going to be flying. So try not to leave those items to right before your flight. Number three, systematic checklist usage. Don't get lazy. Don't rush through it. Don't get complacent. It happens to everyone and super easy to fall into a habit of rushing through when you have the procedures memorized. Actively remind yourself that you might have other distractions and you could miss something important. Flow, verify, verify, or also known as flow, verified, squared. (laughs) And if you sense that one thing after another is not going according to plan, you're feeling hectic and unprepared to take a flight, take a moment to step back, breathe, and slow down. And that's easier said than done sometimes, but we can also support each other. So if you have other pilots on duty with you, create a safe space for you to be able to approach each other and communicate any concerns. Also, help each other out. Two eyes are always better than one. And that concludes this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening in. Again, we apologize for the delay in episodes, but we are back and ready to continue with season number two. And don't forget to like, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. We love you guys and fly safe out there. Bye. Adios.